I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and uh, I will open with some prayer real quick. Lord, uh, we love you and we seek you, and we pray your uh, spirit will open up the ears and eyes and heart uh, of those who are seeking for truth, and that uh, we won't get in the way, but your spirit will convict and convert and bring people closer to you. We pray for this. You'll be with our volunteers and and this uh, broadcast and people who are searching, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Right before we, uh, we always pray in the studio before we begin, and Derek gave a prayer, and he, he said in his prayer, thank God for your grace and mercy. And uh, you know, sometimes things people say, they strike you, and that, that hit a chord in my heart. God's grace is he gives us what we don't deserve. God's grace is giving us what we don't deserve, and His mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. And so it's a great line, and I, I, I uh, just touched my heart, so I thought I'd share it with you. Hey, listen, we're going to be doing a play in the fall, and uh, we've had a meeting already, but if you live in the Salt Lake area and you are interested in theater, uh, mostly, if you're an actor, a true actor, we're going to do a casting call and get true actors and stuff, but even behind the scenes, we need help, a lot of help. So if you're interested, we're going to have a meeting on April 17th, 4 p.m. here at the building. If you're interested in helping out with concessions or tickets or promotion or, or lights or makeup or being a, a stuntman or, or beating people at the door who don't belong here, any of those things, uh, feel free. Go to www.campuschurch.tv and you uh, can get our address. But that's Sunday, April 17th, 4 p.m. We'll be having a volunteers meeting. Listen, we are doing more promoting of our books. The first one was I Was a Born Again Mormon. It's available at hotm.tv, the bookstore. And uh, the book is very um, non-threatening to give to a Latter-day Saint. And uh, so that's the book that started all. We have Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity Face-to-Face. This is a, uh, let's see, 500 page, 600 plus page book. And what it does is it goes through topics and it helps you to understand the difference between the LDS view and the Christian view on a topic. Tithing, Sabbath day, God, Trinity, Jesus, whatever it is. Uh, there's some opinions in there. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. And the byline to this is a believer's refusal to join popular Christian culture. I love this book. 
because it's, uh, it's just, a, uh, just some thought-provoking ideas about not getting involved in the right-wing evangelical movements of today that use Jesus' name to do everything from blowing up places to protesting to marching, uh, all that stuff. This is a good book. Uh, we have a uh, workbook called The End of Material Religion. If you live in the area, we would love for you to pick this up so we don't have to mail it. If you don't live in the area, you can email me and we'll send you a PDF uh, uh, version of it. It's a 40-page uh, kind of a workbook where you just work through and test yourself and see what you think of that. And finally, we have our newest book, Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. And um, we've had some good reviews on this uh, book. Uh, some have told me it's the best thing I've written. And I am starting to feel like it's my favorite book in terms of content. Definitely our books are not perfect. There's typos and things. I don't, we try to fix them, but I don't stress over that. There's mistakes made by me. But it's some stuff to consider about how Christians have used the New Testament today to kill each other with when the Spirit is something that uh, we ought to be operating by. Anyway, consider those things, all of them available at hotm.tv. I think I'm going to start doing more illustrations at the beginning of each show. And by the way, I've always used the whiteboard to illustrate things in Heart of the Matter. It's nothing new. Also, I have off, often always, I have also grown my hair out and or cut it short and grown beards. I say that because a brother in Christ has gone online and decided in the spirit of criticism to say that I am now... Um, uh, becoming a new Gene, Dr. Gene Scott. Those of you who don't know, Dr. Gene Scott used to be on TV. He had long white hair. He used to wear sunglasses. He'd sit, he'd smoke a cigar, and then he'd get up and he'd do drawings on the whiteboard to articulate his ideas. And because I'm sitting now to do Heart of the Matter, and I use the whiteboard, the, the, there's an article in one of these blogs about me being the new Gene Scott. Uh, I hate cigar smoke, so it's just not true. All right, for a board illustration, let me uh, just do this. And uh, if these make sense to you, great. If they don't, well, bear with me. I want to, uh, you to imagine that for 2,000 years, Christianity is sort of like a large boat. We'll call it the Titanic. And uh, it's plunging through the, the cold ocean waters and full steam ahead, impervious to the hidden danger lurking out here in the distance. And the hull that we have long believed to be impenetrable as Christians, uh, that nothing can ever damage our hull, uh, consists of um, ridiculous claims to certain things and ridiculous behaviors on the behalf of some. And then it also consists of uh, misappropriated biblical text. Misappropriated biblical texts, which we take and we use to our advantage, but when they're, and they're out of context, they don't make any sense. We've had some real ugly orthodoxy. I mean, even to the point in our church history where people have been killed and burned and things like that. We've had uh, hollow traditions. We've had uh, empty authority. We've had men who have assumed authority who have no authority. 
And we've had claims to authority where there is none. We've had dogmatism. We've had more and more, in my estimation, a growing trend toward five-point Calvinism, which I think weakens this hull of this ship. We've had, of course, ecclesiastical abuses from, you know, beatings and, and misogynistic practices, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've also been playing church. I'll just call it PC. And, you know, we've had more and more and more as it's grown over the last maybe 100 years, materialism, where, you know, the Old Testament construct of tithes is heaped upon people. And we just had our own self, our selfishness, you know, about me and my Jesus and to hell with everybody else. So I think that over a course of time, we've seen this hull called Christianity. It's an amalgamation of all these things with, of course, the cross and true Christianity, biblical Christianity, playing a very small role in this. And we're headed full steam ahead because nothing can sink us. And we think we've got it all right. And we're headed toward, of course, the great iceberg, which at the surface is only 20 feet tall, but below, it's a monster. And what does is, what is this iceberg consist of? What is it that could sink this beautiful faith, it should be a beautiful faith, that will sink it to the ground? Uh, well, we have geology. G-O-G. We also have really good spellers. No, we have geology. We have, we have advances in biology. And these things do not conflict unless you're on the dogma side and then you have a problem. But science does not conflict with the, with the biblical tenets. It's people interpreting the biblical tenets wrongly. Science does not, unless science is wrong, and, and, or biblical tenets are wrong, somewhere in there. But otherwise, I think we can see that there's harmony between the two. There is sociology we completely ignore. There's psychology, and it's not that it's all completely bunk. We, we try to, uh, in, on this boat, we say, oh, no, no, no. There's things too. There's sciences, and there's studies, and there's growth and improvement in there. We have... Education, we have some of the traditions that we have upheld here, especially in the ridiculous claims area, where some of these things are putting these ridiculous claims in check. And instead of admitting it or trying to see another way, we continually assert dogmatic positions which really shouldn't be taken by ourselves. We have, uh, I mean, just simple reason you know, just simple reason on simple things. If you say to somebody who's super charismatic, well, you know, I'm not so sure I understand the speaking of tongues. You don't understand the speaking of tongues? Well, let me tell you, I do it. And they do it right on the spot. It's really not too reasonable to people. You know, we're trying to incorporate all that New Testament stuff to our day and age, and we say it's real and legitimate. I'm not sure that's the case. And then we have, we have growing kickback from special interest groups. Why is there kickback from special interest groups against this, forming this iceberg? Because this has attacked 
the special interest groups. This has decided that on the cause of Christ, we're supposed to attack special interest groups. Instead of just leaving them alone and realizing that we're all people, we all have different views, and we're trying to figure things out, and we show the love of Christ, and we show long-suffering and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and inclusiveness, not exclusiveness. But instead, now we're starting to get even governmental kickback from a special interest group, and it's guys, or it's guys, or it is under the thing called hate. Why? Because we have been hateful. We haven't, we haven't brought in the love of Christ. We have used people's lifestyles as a reason to attack rather than leave the lifestyle alone because the Christian lifestyle is no better. Oh, what? No, we have as much sin as everybody else. It's just that we look and we say, hey, he's forgiven us of ours. These, some of the special interest people here, they haven't found Christ yet, but they never will unless we come to them in a different way. And there's growing governmental... Sanctions, let's pretend I wrote it, sanctions, right? And, and those are being heaped upon us because the government is saying, look, what, you guys have tax-exempt status and you're preaching against this and you're preaching against that that you're not supposed to. You're making political stances. So when these two meet, guess who's going to win? Now, I don't think the body of Christ True followers by the Spirit of Christ are going to go anywhere. But I do think that we can save ourselves a lot of damage and we can keep ourselves from uh, sinking to the bottom of the ocean. When the godless, if you want to call it the godless iceberg of humanism or the iceberg that does not understand what we believe comes in contact, full contact with this, that thing's going to sink. Might be for the better. Maybe we need to get rid of all the stuff that that hole's made out of, except that cross on there. Maybe we ought to be crossing the sea on big wooden crosses alone with no other man-made hull. It's, it's all analogous. So now's the time for change. It really is. All the stuff, creationism versus evolution, all the stuff about worldwide flood versus local flood, all the stuff about did all the animals get stuffed on the ark or not, all the zealotry, all the, the Bible speaks against this, it speaks against that, that's therefore we will ostracize. It's got to go. It's just got to go. In order for this wonderful, beautiful faith that God so loved this world, he sent his son to be with us and then die with us and die for us. And that's all it is. And that is getting lost in this whole mess behind us. All right. Even though we haven't been on television here in Utah since December of 2012, I'm still approached almost every day, really, whether it's in Kimball Junction or it's down here in the valley, if I'm that guy who used to be on TV. And it can be assumed that when people approach you in public, they're friendly. And um, because those who bear unfriendly feelings toward you usually let you know they don't like you from a distance with a mean look or a nudge or something like that. And they typically don't approach me if, they, if it's unfriendly. Interestingly enough, for me, I get looks of disdain more from Christians than I do from the LDS. Uh, and you might say, well, how do you know they're Christians? Well, they're, they have the insignias, they have the cross, or they, 
They have the Christian garb, the T-shirt that says, you know, uh, Carpenter died for me or something like that. Anyway, a guy approached me last week and he said, I've heard you changed your views about Mormonism, what happened? And this isn't the first time I've been hit up with this, so I thought I'd address it really quickly. I have not changed my views of the institution of Mormonism. Mormonism for me is the same as it's ever been in my mind for the past uh, 15 years. And my views are exactly the same as when we did the first show. If you go back and watch or listen to the programs we did in 2006, you'll see that I'm able to support this claim. My views have always been that Mormonism is a man-made religion, that Mormon doctrine is unbiblical in some very significant ways, uh, and that Mormon doctrine often breeds pride, and that Mormonism is not Christian. I have maintained that from the beginning and always have. Still do. Uh, but I've also always maintained and admitted that not all Mormon people are proud. And some Mormon people are as saved as some Baptists or Catholics or Pentecostals or whatever. And then if an individual chooses to remain LDS after they have come to know Christ, uh, that's a personal decision between them and God. And we have said that from the beginning. We've never altered on that. We've always said we were one of the only... Christian ministries that has said, it's up to you what you do. It's between you and God. And of course, all the rest of them went nuts. You can't tell people that, you know. So, but what has changed, however, is I've seen that there's as much man-made religion and evangelical Christianity as there is in Mormonism. I mean, that's changed. My eyes weren't open. Uh, Much of modern evangelicalism is also very unbiblical and in, in contradiction to what is there. And even more so, it does not matter what brick-and-mortar church a person attends every week or what doctrine they even entertain. What matters is do they have the heart for God? And is their personal knowledge there of Him and His Son? And is their love? Is their faith? Is their love? That has changed. I don't care who you are, what you are. If you have that To me, you're my brother or sister. I leave it alone. So we have deconstructed much in terms of uh, positions of doctrinal dogmatism that I uh, used to uphold. And yes, we've shifted from supporting objective religion, which we used to, to endorsing what we call subjective relationships with God. But this really isn't anything new. Watch the old shows. We've just opened up to a much more liberal way of doing things. Listen, in so doing, we've become more accepting of others, not less. When I started, I started off pretty accepting, and then I narrowed down to not being very accepting at all because of the audience calling in live for seven years. I began to be pretty unaccepting, and, uh, and that changed. This points to the final change. I've changed my heart towards that approach. Why? How? Because I believe the Spirit stepped in and told me that I was errant in my ways. And as a direct result of his influence, I've been better equipped to love others, especially in the area of those who hate, abuse, and malign me. And that includes most of the evangelicals around these parts, at least. So uh, even as a new Christian, God blessed me with a heart for the lost and sinful. I've always had that as a Latter-day Saint, as a Christian. That's not the problem with me. My problem, my heartburn is with the uh, authority and with those who challenge me or ridicule me. And so uh, now I see 
better that they have some reasons to do that, that they have a perspective that could have validity, and uh, it's incumbent upon me to love them, and that's the biggest change that's occurred. So I hope that's clear. And with that, how about a moment from Zawad? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. All right, last week we talked about Peter and when he said that we should hoopogramos Jesus, that means that we should uh, copy and walk as he did. And that's the Greek term, hoopogramos, and Peter uses it. I want to kind of turn to a very familiar passage of what Paul says, and I'm going to continue on with this kind of thought. And you know it really, really well, if, especially if you're in apologetics uh, with people. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and you know what he says. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay? That's the system. We know this verse. We cite this verse, especially the Mormon-Christian debate. It comes up all the time. We quote that. The LDS quote James 2, and uh, the battle goes on. But seven times out of ten, we neglect to read just the following passage there in Ephesians. Uh, it says, So, by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, as the gifts of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Next verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So, for we are, those, are, those, those who have been saved by grace through faith are, uh, Paul says, his workmanship. And that's the hupogramos that we were talking about that Peter brought up. We are his poema in the Greek, and his product. We are his fabrication is really what it means. That Christ has, those who have believed on him, he has uh, produced a model, and he's produced another one. He's produced a product that reflects him. And we are created, copied, fashioned unto, it says, good works, which God has ordained that we should walk in them. So part one, we are saved by grace through faith. It's certainly a gift of God because he had he never extended his love to us, we never would have received it, according to Scripture. But part two is, as a result, we are then his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has so ordained but that we should walk in him. Contextually speaking, taking all of the New Testament into account, everything that it says, the narrative, uh, even the law and the prophets, what are these good works, these good works that we were created to do? Okay? We were created unto good works. What are they? One word. Love. Those are the good works of a Christian. It's love. If that means in your life, because your religion is lived subjectively, that you hold your tongue when someone's insulted you, you're being a Christian. If it means to help the old lady unpack her garbage cans, whatever that means, then that's what it is. It, it, it's not forced upon you to do. It is brought to you as an invitation by the Spirit to love other people. If it means not judging somebody, then you hold back. The more you love, the more you are doing the works of Christ. 
His works are not the way that religions take his works and say, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. His works are always love. Okay? Agape love. Uh, love of God first, love of others second. Love of self last. That's how it works in Scripture. And that, you know, there's a ridiculous fad out there among Christians, and they wear these bracelets, and the bracelets say, I am second. And I don't know if you've seen those. <clears throat> I got news for you uh, from the Bible. Christians are not second. Uh, uh, God is first, and then others are second, and then we are last. It works like this. Just think of it, and I've shared it before. If you take the cross of Christ, the first thing that had to go up had to be this post. You couldn't hang this post up first. It would hang on nothing, right? So the first thing to go in the ground is that post, that beam. And what is that representing? Earth to God, God to earth. It's that relationship first that comes into play, all right? And it's free and it's open and it's unconditional and it's fully accepting and it's love and it's grace and it's you being, realizing that God loves you so much he sent his son for you to do what you couldn't do and that's it, that's there first. Then once that's in place, they hang this bar, right? And what is that? That's reaching out to others. Christianity is not going and doing good deeds in hopes that this is in place. It's you do the reaching out to others in love because this is in place first. So that's how it works in the way that you understand your theological stance and walk as a Christian. This is in place first. You know that you have been forgiven completely of everything past, present, and future, right? You don't have to judge anybody of their present sins. They've been forgiven past, present, and future. And when you understand that gift, you then reach out this way in a natural way, not as an obligation. Show me a person whose doctrine is this or that, who truly loves God and others, and I'll, I'll show you somebody who rightly divides uh, the Bible, the Word of God. They understand it. If they're loving, I'm not going to question what they do practice or believe. How could you? Why would you? They're, they're accomplishing the very thing that God's total objective is for his children to be loving, okay? Conversely, show me somebody who's unloving to others, and I'll show you somebody who has a problem with their theology. They've somehow misinterpreted what is being said, and they've filtered it through a humanistic stance, and then it's coming out as something that's non-love. And when that comes out, we can say there's a theological problem. Okay? So maybe uh, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's not doctrinal superiority or being right or knowing all things. So Paul here commends us, like Peter did, to understand that having been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, that we are now his workmanship. And we are created in Christ Jesus unto loving others loving God, loving others, and that we should walk in those things. And that's the whole point and purpose. May the Spirit move us toward that place in our flesh. All right, now we're going to enter into a new study we've done. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit tonight, comparing uh, uh, what the Christians have taught and then how that's changed, and then what Mormonism has taught and how that's changed. We, are equally cha we have equally changed, and we'll show you that. We've talked about God in the past few shows uh, relative to the LDS Christian views. We've talked about Jesus 
in terms of ontology, his makeup, not so much about his life and, and works. And now we're going to venture into a mysterious topic for most people. It's the most mysterious. It's like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because we don't know much. And so we, we're all kind of confused about the Holy Spirit. I think you might be surprised by some of the information. I say this because both the LDS and Christian traditions and general view and understanding of the Holy Spirit have morphed. And I'll prove it to you. So let's get to it. In both Mormonism and traditional Christian thought, meaning Trinitarianism, the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost in the King James, if you read the King James, Holy Spirit and other translations, is considered the third member of the Godhead to the LDS and the third member, so, so to speak, of the Trinity. Okay? Both, both religions give you the third member. All right? In the Old Testament, we read that the Spirit, with a capital S, was at work in creation. It's mentioned in Genesis that the Spirit brooded over the waters. And then throughout the Old Testament, the same Spirit moved upon men and inspired them to speak and write Holy Scripture. That's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit moving upon men to write what, or to prophesy. The, Holy, uh, the Old Testament never uses the term Holy Spirit it never, hagias pneuma in the Greek, it never uses Holy Ghost, uh, but instead it appeals to a phrase that is the Spirit of the Lord. Old Testament is always the Spirit of the Lord. That to me is really uh, significant. To describe what seems to be more an influence of the one God, His influence, rather than a personage or consciousness uh, or an entity with a mind of its own. That comes along later, both in Mormonism and in Christianity, that the Holy Spirit developed into a consciousness with his own personality being mind of his own. It's also of interest that the Old Testament uh, word for spirit, ruah, is, it's really ruah, uh, is feminine. It's feminine. And in the uh, Greek, the New Testament, pneuma, is neuter. It's not either feminine or masculine. So we have a shift there between Old Testament Spirit of the Lord and New Testament Holy Spirit in that uh, the Old Testament was feminine, and then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is written of a neuter gender, not masculine or feminine. That's very interesting. In both places, the term pneuma or ruah means breath, breath of life, wind, inspiration, divine inspiration. Uh, when God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, he breathed his spirit, pneuma, breath, into Adam, and he became a living soul. That's the ruah, okay? So in the Old Testament, in terms of spirit, is a way of expressing God's activity in creation and in giving people uh, prophecy. No person of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost has ever described Old Testament. Uh, L.A. Bushinsky, he's a Catholic scholar and a Trinitarian, admits, quote, the Old Testament clearly does not envisage God's Spirit as a person. God's Spirit in the Old Testament is simply God's power. Got that? All apologies on the table to my Trinitarian brothers and sisters. I love you the same. But uh, I continue to see the Holy Spirit the way Bushinsky describes the Holy Spirit. It's 
God's breath. It's God's spirit. Bushinsky adds, quote, If it, meaning the Holy Spirit, is sometimes represented as being distinct from God, it's because the breath of God acts upon man exteriorly. And so, in other words, it, it sounds like it's a distinct person because it's acting upon people from the exterior in the Old Testament. Additionally, nowhere in the Old Testament do we read of there being gifts of the Spirit as we do in the New, or read of receiving eternal truths by the Spirit, uh, except for the prophets receiving inspiration. The most obvious presence of the Holy Spirit engaged with man in the Old Testament is when it would rest upon someone and then they would provide words that were God-breathed. That means inspired, like the wind in them. It seems the idea of the Holy Spirit being God's influence rather than the third person of a Godhead or Trinity was around at least up into the New Testament times. James Dunn in his book Christology in the Making says, quote, At the time of Jesus, the divine spirit or spirit was not yet thought of in Judaism, even as a semi-independent divine agent. Okay? That's what his studies show. Not even as a semi-independent divine agent. It was just the word, the spirit of God. However, in the New Testament narrative, we begin to see that the Holy Spirit in passages like Luke 24, 29, and Acts 2, 33 as a representative that God would send to encourage and teach and comfort and uplift believers. However, even then, and based on the Greek, the Holy Spirit, which is still the same Spirit of the Lord, doesn't appear to have been seen as a third person of the Godhead or Trinity, even then. Bushinsky says, quote, The New Testament text reveals God's Spirit as something, not someone. This is especially seen in the parallelism between the Spirit and the power of God. Okay, we're almost done. We'll wrap it up. But in the Gospel of John, which was one of the later books written in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit is described in a more personal way. There's a reason for this. Remember, in Hebrew, the Spirit of the Lord is always in the feminine gender And in the Greek, the Holy Spirit was always neuter, right? Except in places where the neuter gender is either ignored by translators and the Holy Spirit is referred to as masculine, as he rather than it, or if a masculine noun is used in description of the Spirit, or if a masculine noun is used to describe the Spirit. Does that happen in Scripture? It happens five times, four times, five in John's gospel. All right. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, comforter translated in the, New, in the King James. Since paraclete is a masculine pronoun, it must be met with a masculine gender. In other words, the term he would be used if it's a masculine pronoun to describe him. All right? Charles Harrell puts it this way. What is lost in translation here is the fact that the masculine pronoun in these instances is necessitated because the Greek word paraclete, which is usually translated as comforter, happens to be a masculine noun. So Jesus used a masculine pronoun to describe the Holy Spirit comforter. Because of that, they assigned the word he to it. And the minute John did that in those four or five places, 
we suddenly, at the time of Constantine, decide he's a person. It's a being. It's a third person. It has its own mind. He has his own personality. He's not just the spirit of the Lord that God sends to encourage. He is a personage. Got it? And in other words, it's a t the term comforter is masculine, but not necessarily the Holy Spirit. But we've taken that and we've moved forward and jumped on it and it's just rolled forward. Next week, we're going to get into what, how Joseph Smith uh, taught about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was God's breath. The Holy Spirit was God's influence. The Holy Spirit in the first uh, 12 years of Mormonism officially being founded was not a third person. And it didn't have a body or a being in the journal of, in the lectures on faith. And we're going to show how within Mormonism too, the Holy Spirit started off with Smith embracing early Christian Christ, uh, uh, theology on the Spirit and moving into making the Holy Spirit a being just like Christianity has. So we'll get to that. All right, we have uh, Dallas and Alberta, Canada on the line. And uh, then we also have a uh, question offline. I'll read that first, then we'll get to Dallas. Uh, but before that, take a look at this. All right, from Missouri, Missouri, would you address the following question in depth? Sometimes when my husband meets people, he gets strong, positive, or negative spiritual impressions, like he has seen darkness or light around them. Any ideas about where this comes from or what to do with this? Is this intuition, seeing auras from God, or something altogether darker? Many thanks. From Gen C. Uh, you're asking the wrong guy. I, uh, I, some people believe they have that ability. Uh, Dave Bartosowitz, you guys might know him. He believes he sees auras too around people. He can, he even puts them into a color spectrum, uh, where it radiates out as being super bright and lesser dark and things. And you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm such a cynic. I smile at things like that. But you know, I could be wrong. Uh, I don't think that it's darker. I wouldn't say that. But I would just be very careful because, uh, you know. But I know there's a lot of people who believe in those types of things. So I, I don't mean to be kind of uh, wishy-washy, but I really don't know how to see that. And if I had someone who was here at campus or somebody might say they see ours, I'd say, well, that's cool. I'm, you know, consider it a gift, I guess, you know. But then my next question would be, what do you see around me? <laughs> Uh, this is from someone else. I have a real touchy question. I'm 50, and after a lifetime of taking the sacrament, that's LDS communion, I now feel it's mock cannibalism. Also, that it may have been an added concept help. 
That's from John B. Uh, well, I guess if you're Catholic, the LDS sacrament, you say sacrament, but you're talking about mock cannibalism. That sounds like the doctrine of transubstantiation within Catholicism. And it is, in a sense, very close to that because they do believe that there's a brief moment when the wafer and the wine literally turn to his flesh and blood. And so uh, I can understand you feeling that way. The idea of communion, taking bread and wine, is not literal in the biblical sense. I know it sounds like it because of the way Jesus talks to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. If you don't eat my flesh, you are no wise worthy of me. He says those two things. And so people have extrapolated that out. But that was just a Hebraism. It's a way of talking. And it just eat this in remembrance of me. The other thing is, he said, do this until I come. Do this until I come. All right. If he has come in 70 AD, wiped out Jerusalem, as history shows, it was wiped out. And all that's done, then if you're taking communion now, it has much less symbolism in that literal sense than it did for them then. Best I can do. Let's go to Dallas in Alberta, Canada. Dallas, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing, ma'am? You got to turn your uh, computer down. Okay, I did. Go for it. Okay. I've been in the church for about 40 years, and uh, I came in as a convert, only member in the family, and uh, I believe I had a born-again experience when I was praying. I wanted to know if there was a God. And if there was, I knew I had to make some changes or let's just eat, drink, and be merry. And I got my answer, and there's no part of me that doesn't know that there's a, a living God. Okay. Along come the Mormons, and as you would say, got, got me hooked with the Book of Mormon. It all sounded great. It all seemed great. And spiritually, it felt great. And... For about 40 years now, I've been avidly bearing my testimony, and it's had a significant influence on a lot of people. And uh, I've served faithfully in the church. I've served faithfully in my community. And in listening to your talk tonight, that's one of the big issues that I always had in the church. There was a lack of love for your fellow man, and both within and without the church. And I don't need to talk about the pigeonholing stuff, but uh, if you're a little bit different, you're just not in there. And I am different, and uh, have experienced a lot of very insensitive, even at times cruel um, treatment at times. I'm sorry. Well, that's that's life, Sean. I mean, I've suffered all my adult life. Uh, when I was 18, I froze my hands up north and fell 35 feet off a power pole on the frozen ground, and I actually thought I was dead. But uh, I had to walk out after that several miles. There was nobody around, and I don't know why I never froze to death, but hmm. the bottom line is I went soul-searching, and um, the Mormon doctrine seemed to have all the answers for the questions I could never come up with reasonable answers to. And um, I was actually going to leave the church about, oh, 20 years ago. My son, um, who has cancer, had a wish 
and the Wish Foundation um, provided our whole family an opportunity to visit Gordon B. Hinckley. It was because of that visit that I never quit because that was the first time in a long time that I felt real love from anyone in the church. Hmm. And I thought, well, I better reevaluate things here. And I stuck with it, but uh, uh, for the most part, I've been greatly disappointed. And um, I feel a responsibility because of the influences that I'd really like to stand at that podium one more time and bear witness to what I know is true in regard to Jesus Christ. And also that I was misled and that there's a lot of conflicting historical doctrine in this church that people are totally oblivious to. And if it was really true, you just don't get that kind of radical flip-flopping. And I understand that. But uh, I still struggle with trying to come to an understanding of where I actually came from, what I am actually doing here, though I I still serve faithfully my fellow man and my God, however he directs me. And uh, I'd like to think I'm going to go to a nicer place after this, but uh, I guess time will tell. (laughs) Dallas, a couple thoughts uh, before we let you go. Do you mind? No. First of all, Seekers find him, and whether you're LDS or Mormon, uh, uh, you know, from your, what you say, I trust your words, and I'm sure you know the Lord, and uh, so that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point is uh, religion in and of itself is almost antithetical to love. The reason being is because religion has to exist through rules and through laws, through orders of conduct dress, behavior, conduct, uh, who obeys, who contributes, who shows up. And Mormonism is so big on that, that's why there, in my opinion, is less love there. Because when you put a law up in front of people, and you say, you must do this, and you must do that, it does two things to humans. You read it, and you say, well, I do that, and I do that, and I do that, and that law makes you proud. So. Mm-hmm. Or you say, and when you say, I do that, you point a finger at others and you say, and they're not doing it, and they're not doing it, and they're not doing it. So it makes you unloving. Or it convicts you so badly that you give up and you go the opposite direction. So the law will destroy you. The laws and the rules destroy. Christ does not. Christ fulfilled the law. And so that lack of love that you feel at the local level, I just want to reiterate, is not only in Mormonism, it's in religion in general, typically, because institutions can't thrive without laws. But the second thing is, uh, keep going, my brother, and let the, let the Lord guide you. If you feel like you can enlighten and share and help people in the LDS church by getting up and sharing the Jesus you know, by all means do it. Uh, if you're doing it for vindictiveness or something, which I, it doesn't sound like you would, but if no, you were, I wouldn't. No, vindictiveness at all. It's the sense of responsibility. Then do it. Do it. They will, uh, I, I, I know for a fact that there are meetings where people have t- tried to do certain things, and the bishop will stand up and say, the meeting's adjourned, and all the members get up and walk out while the guy's at the podium. Well, so be prepared for that, but otherwise, go do it, my friend. 
and give yourself give yourself a break too. You know, I think most people who have been LDS for any amount of time have tried to bring others in. We've served missions. We believed it. You haven't been sharing something you didn't believe. You've honestly believed you were sharing the truth. And God uses all those things to our good. Don't beat yourself up. That's just darkness trying to bring you down. Okay. All right, my brother. Thanks for watching, Dallas. Thank you very much, Sean. Okay, bye. God bless you. God bless you. Uh, LDS General Conference was uh, last week, and just some quick highlights. Uh, this is from ABC News. A top LDS leader kicked off the church conference by telling members that the religion is, quote, the only church, the only true church, excuse me, and that its top leaders speak for the Lord. Uh, I would take exception to that. I don't believe there is a true church. The church is a body of believers, whether, whatever religion they attend. And, um, and then the second speaker, not the second speaker, but another person quoted at 12 p.m. says, um, we need to be tolerant of people who practice other religions and who hold different political affiliations, a reiteration of, of that. And while that is the public pronouncement, and that's what is said publicly, uh, we know that 30,000 missionaries are going door to door and they're taking the first message, we're the only true church on the face of the earth, and the person says, well, what about my Baptist upbringing? Well, Joseph Smith said that God told him all the churches are an abomination. And so tolerance is impossible in a religion that says that other religions are based upon a false premise, Satan, darkness, and the truth needed to be restored. So you have these conflicting messages. One guy saying we're the only true church, but another guy saying, listen, we need to express tolerance toward people of other faiths. And what that really means translated is, we're going to say what we think about those other faiths, but we'll be kind to the people who are in them outwardly. Inwardly, we will think they belong to the church of the devil, as described in the, in the temple ceremonies. So there's a problem with that. We just point that out. Uh, additionally, oh, question, please. My name is Carolyn. I am from Richfield, Utah. I came to Christ 13 years ago and have asked not asked to have my name taken off the records of the Mormon church. Must I do this? No, you must not. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. Uh, if you want to do that, um, by all means. Um, it really doesn't matter in some ways. It's going to cause them to do a little extra work. It will show that more people are exiting. So that might lend to them making some changes that would be beneficial to the institution. But uh, what they do when you take your name off the records of the church is they just put uh, NM next to your name that are always on the records of the church. It's always on. You, uh, my name is still on the records of the church. It just says NM, non-member. So uh, my wife took her name off. Her name's still on and my kids' names are still on. So you can't get your name off. And you can threaten them with legal action and they'll say, yes, we've removed your name. Yes, we've done it. But in reality, your names are on that roll. So if, if it's causing you a bunch of heartburn, don't worry about it. D, how am we doing on time? Derek's asleep at the wheel back there. <laughs> uh, uh, this is from uh, Sweden. It's Andre Knutsen. I am an ex-Latter-day Saint Christian. Love your show. I was saved. This made me love Jesus more than anything else because he saved me in spite of my sins. 
There's the idea in, in, in religion that, in some religion, that in order for Jesus to love you, you have to clean yourself up. You gotta repent and you have to get yourself really lined up. I remember when I was an LDS zone leader on my mission that uh, uh, I, was, I interviewed people for baptism and made sure that they were not sexually immoral or hadn't had or haven't been drinking or doing drugs or stealing from their employer and making sure they were qualified to be baptized and join the LDS church. But the biblical message is he comes and he takes you where you are. He takes you as you are and he works with you to bring you to where he wants you to be by the Spirit, not by external rules. And so he says, when I was saved, it made me love Jesus more because he saved me in spite of my sins. This realization changed me. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. And there's one commandment, and that is to love. And even though I don't do it right, he still has taken care of all my sins. And that's the other beautiful thing about true Christianity, is it is unconditional is that it's not predicated on our righteousness, it's not predicated on our repenting constantly, it's not predicated on our being bitchin' people. Bitchin', I haven't heard that word in a long time. It is predicated on saying, I trust you. I trust that you did it. That's all it is. And then he starts empowering you to overcome the things that are unseemly or that you wanna overcome or that he wants you to work on. And that's the whole thing with the homosexuals. You know, it's always like, you got to stop being a gay. Look at, just let the gays be gay and let God work with the gays, just like he works with me and my lust and my, my avarice and my gluttony and all my things. He works with the gays with theirs. He works with your gossiping. He works with your, your masturbation. He works with everybody. He came and saved us, took care of the sin. You know, he says, let me help you out with that. And you're not perfect. But the religion wants to make you perfect because if you're not, then you feel guilty and then you keep coming back to it and saying, what do I do? Well, you need to serve us more in order to be forgiven. Okay, I will. And then you fail. and It's a revolving door. And that's not what it's about. Jesus is not a revolving door. He's the dude. He's right there, right? Another one, is it, good, is it a good idea to bear testimony to the LDS congregation that you were wrong in past meetings, how would, you, how would you most effectively do that without being disrespectful? That's a follow-up question from Dallas. In, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's gutsy. And some, you may have someone here, you know, you may have someone hear you, you may not, I don't know. It's, it's really, these types of things are what you feel impressed to do, you sound like you're concerned about being disrespectful, so I'm sure that would guide your words, Dallas. Relax, testimony meeting comes up, and you want to say, listen, I've, I have believed in Jesus my whole life, and I have shared a wrong message with some of you, and I'm sorry. I think you could do that in a humble way where it wouldn't ruffle feathers, and the spirit of it would transcend into people's hearts. Uh, on KUTV.com, I guess... Tomorrow, according to Warren Jeffs, the FLDS are embracing for the apocalypse to begin. Yes, indeed, tomorrow the end of the world is coming. Warren Jeffs is going to be freed from jail by an earthquake that crumbles the walls of the prison down. The caveat that Jeffs has used in the past when his predictions of the end don't happen is you guys aren't worthy enough you need to cleanse yourselves and repent 
in order for my prophecy to come true. You gotta love it. We're gonna wrap it up tonight. Remember this Sunday, not this Sunday, Sunday, the 17th of April, 4 p.m. here, if you're local at the campus. Uh, come and d discuss the play that we're working to put together and uh, called Sorrow. If you can come, go to www.campuschurch.tv. It'll give you directions on how to get here. Not that easy. We'd love to see you. And we'll see you next week, continuing to talk about the Holy Spirit here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light.